What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> ECW World Heavyweight Champion. The ECW. When you want to load down the professional wrestling, come right here to the two-man power trip of wrestling. You'll get all the load down. <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the, on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. It just You said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. but Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's, uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. today and powered by our friends over at Meowbox. Meowbox is a monthly cat subscription box service full of surprises and delivered to your door every single month. And please be sure to stay tuned a little bit later on in the show for a special promotion just for the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling courtesy of Meowbox and Meowbox.com. And with that being said, my name is Chad and as always I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime John Paz. And John, today on the show, we are joined by another member of the elusive New Jersey independent wrestling scene of the 1990s, a scene that if you listen to the two-man power trip of wrestling, you know we are literally obsessed with. If you go back and look at some of the names that we've had on from the independent scene in New Jersey and the East Coast from the 1990s, it's a who's who of guys that had some superstardom in big-time promotions and then other ones who really were superstars of the indie scene. 
And today's guest, Mike Bucci, a.k.a. Hollywood Nova, a.k.a. Nova, a.k.a. Simon Dean in the WWE, joins us today. And I like to call him a gap filler, but unfortunately, I have to say, this was recorded on my wife's birthday, and I unfortunately had to miss this interview, and it really, and I'm still feeling and reeling from missing the interview. I know Primetime Pause has been ribbing me a little bit on the side about it, and uh, we have a mutual friend who uh, I guess is uh, kind of upset that I missed this one, and trust me, I'm still reeling. I'm very upset. I wish that I could have been on this one, but Primetime, you had some time spent with Mike Bucci, and you went over, obviously, everything in his career and had some great stories coming out of it and one of the things that i loved listening back to it was the stories about the legendary late great iron mike sharp and of course mike bucci being a member of the iron mike sharp school of professional wrestling the stories alone are worth the price of admission but tell us a little bit more about what you learned from mike bucci in this awesome interview well chad we had an absolute fantastic interview with Mike Bucci, a.k.a. Nova, just covered all topics, all gamuts. Just what an unbelievable chat I was able to have with him. So much fun. Just for the fact that we were able to go back to the New Jersey Independent scene. Obviously, I was a long-time, as were you, Chad, a long-time fan of the New Jersey Independents, having grown up in New Jersey all my life. So we've seen Nova and former guests, obviously, Mike Quackenbush, Devin Storm, Ace Darling, Reckless Youth, Tom Carter. I mean, we've seen them all, and we're privileged to interview them all, and it was great to get one of the best ones out of that whole crop, Mike Bucci, a.k.a. Nova. So it was great to talk about that whole New Jersey Independent scene. So much fun. So many great, talented guys came out of there that we haven't interviewed yet or that we're looking to interview in the future. I mean, that, I'm not going to name all the guys, but, you know, there's so many great, talented guys that came out of the New Jersey independent scene. It is so underrated. But Nova sticks out as one of the most popular ones and one of the better ones because he really made a name for himself outside of the New Jersey independent scene. Obviously, he made a huge name for himself in ECW and then obviously down the road in OVW and then WWE. But let's stick with New Jersey just for a second here. And one of the great topics that we get to talk about on our show a few times is a man that passed away last year, and that is the great, the legendary Iron Mike Sharp. So it's always great to be able to talk to some of his students, and obviously we have in the past, like I just mentioned. But with Nova specifically, he had some great, great, hilarious Iron Mike Sharp stories. You're going to love those. So entertaining, so candid, so truthful. I just absolutely love what he had to say about Iron Mike. And you just love that because... Mike was such a quirky, interesting guy and also a legend in the business and obviously a long-time WWF guy. And even after he was done with the WWF, he had such a great relationship with WWE, uh, WWE, a.k.a. WWF, that he would have all of his students go and they do enhancement matches and jobber matches, which we get into with Nova. And obviously we talk about the lost art of the jobber matches, which have seemed to gone away as each year passes. And I kind of miss those, and so does Nova. So, I mean, just great chat about the New Jersey independent scene and some really, really great stuff on Iron Mike Sharp. Yeah, his stories are absolutely fantastic, and he's such an engaging guy. I could listen to him talk about the weather and the traffic. 
for days and days because I just love the way he talks. And I don't know if that's a Jersey thing or what, but he's just he's one guy that I've always taken to. If he's giving an interview, I always go out of my way to listen to it because I just love his take on things. And he's very real. And obviously, he's done very well for himself outside of wrestling. So it's also cool to see that regard. But, you know, you think about his time in talent relations, and he had to be, you know, the lead guy for quite a while and dealing with different egos and dealing with a lot of different guys and coming from the world of ECW, obviously another place where you really had to earn your stripes. And he was there for such a long time, close to seven or eight years in ECW as it went under. But we'll always remember the time in the BWO as Hollywood Nova. You know, we'll remember uh, all the funny sketches and the night. I'll never forget the night the uh, BWO debuted at November to remember 1996. It was such a, a goof at the time, and you didn't think it was going to last. But, you know, it's a testament to the three guys involved in the group. And we've already talked to Blue Meanie about it a few months back, uh, probably actually in the summertime, looking back at this point. But, um, you know, getting Nova's point on, on this, getting his perspective, it was another uh, another really cool aspect of his career. And obviously, Simon Dean as well, and we're going to get into that. But, John, the BWO, it's 20 years later, which is hard to believe, but still, to this day, it's one of the most remembered parts of ECW. And, of course, Nova, Mike Bucci, was a huge part of the BWO. You know what? Obviously, when you talk to Nova, you have to talk about Hollywood Nova, and you have to talk about ECW, and you have to talk about the Blue Meanie, Stevie Richards. you got to talk about the BWO, the Blue World Order, and we go into that in great detail. How Nova got into ECW is a great story that involves Raven. How the Kiss parody came about, how the parody of the NWO came about just so crazy when you think about how things develop in the wrestling business and there's no like divine plan where it's just like oh i thought this all out and it was going to be great no because if you hear the great story from nova the bwo wasn't really thought of as anything great it was just a parody one night thing and then they're done but as we talk about in the interview extensively 20 years later we're still talking about the bwo the bwo is still doing autograph signings the bwo is still wrestling the bwo is still on WWE dvds the bwo is on the WWE network so it's crazy 20 years later after the bwo debuted in ecw that they're still around and they're still as popular as ever because if you go to the signings you go to the shows they always have a long line people always want to talk to the bwo it's just one of those things that was always entertaining to everybody, and it got over so much, shockingly so. I mean, so many people didn't see big things out of the BWO, and we talked to Nova about it. Uh, Paul Heyman didn't either. He just thought it was a one-night thing, and it was over. So it's just uh, crazy the way things work out. Obviously, we get some funny stories about the origins of why he's Hollywood Nova, why Dance and Stevie Richards ended up being... Um, Big Stevie Cool, and why the Blue Mini ended up being the blue guy. So just great stuff there. I just love the BWO stuff. And, of course, you got to talk about Simon Dean. Such a polarizing character one way or another. I thought it was hilarious. Always cutting great funny promos. Always doing some great um, vignettes and some great backstage stuff and some great promos in the ring as far as some interactions that he had with some great names and one that sticks out and that we talk about in the interview is the one with Stone Cold Steve Austin and how Maven was on the Simon system so it's just funny funny stuff and you can check out a great YouTube clip that we just put up at the interview with Nova that has to do with Dean Malenko because if you don't know Simon Dean 
backwards, a.k.a. Dean Simon, is actually Dean Malenko's real name, and supposedly the gimmick was a, a little bit of a rib on him. So we get into that in detail as well. So you're really, really going to enjoy that. It's a lot of fun. And while you're at it, 4.30 in Rawway, New Jersey, come check out the Blue Meanie and come check out Hollywood Nova at Rawway, New Jersey, Wrestle Pro, Pat Buck's great promotion here in the great state of New Jersey. Again, that is 4.30 in Rawway, New Jersey at the Rawway Rec Center for a Wrestle Pro. And also you will see a good friend of ours and a good friend of the show, the Honky Tonk Man will be there as well, as well as all your Wrestle Pro favorites like Pat Buck, Kevin Matthews, Dan Moff, Brian Myers, and many, many more. So don't miss out on Wrestle Pro 430 in Rawway, New Jersey. That's right. April 30th, 430, Rawway, New Jersey, WrestleProOnline.com. But also, why don't you get over to the Rawway Rec Center and purchase tickets at the door and meet the superstars of WrestlePro, including Kurt Hawkins, including Bull Dempsey, including Pat Buck, including the Honky Tonk Man, including the Blue World Order. It's going to be a hot night, and it's going to be an amazing array of action and the two-man power trip will be a part of this event and in a, a very grand fashion might i add and hopefully we've got some great stuff coming out of that entire event and with that being said prime time tell them a little bit more about meow box and hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business before getting it on over to a guy i still can't believe i had to miss the interview and I really hope to talk to him at WrestlePro and uh, get a little Jersey guy one on one with Mike Bucci. Yes, Meowbox is back. Not only is your Meowbox personalized by hand with your cat's name written on the inside of the box, all of the edible items are made in Canada or the USA, so you know where all your ingredients are coming from. Also, they have a program. It's a giving program. It's called One Box Can. With every Meow Box purchase, they donate a can of food to a shelter cat on your behalf. Also, and most importantly to me, for picky cats like mine, my cat is Lucy, who has a very special diet. We offer to receive Meow Boxes with absolutely no edible items. They actually replace food and treats with more toys and more surprises. So that's MeowBox.com. Please enter promo code POWERTRIP10 and receive 10% off your first subscription again it's meowbox.com enter the promo code powertrip10 and now for some tmpt business like us on facebook follow us on twitter at wrestling pal and at two man power trip please subscribe to us on youtube we are releasing the latest and greatest clips also subscribe to us on itunes while you're on there please check out the feed for prior great episodes with the late American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Jesse the Body Ventura, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, the phenomenal A.J. Styles, the Demon, Glenn Kane Jacobs, the Lunatic Fringe, Dean Ambrose, Stan the Laird Hansen, and many, many more. Also, please check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. You can now check us out on Google Play, as well as Player FM and the i95 Sports Network. For any bookings, please hit up our email, bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com for any of your booking needs. 
Also, check out our store on ProWrestlingTees.com. It is new and it is awesome. So please check it out as ProWrestlingTees.com. Also, while you're there, check out the Kevin Thorne page as well as the Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff page and the coming soon, the Buff Bagwell page. So please check that out on ProWrestlingTees.com. And now, without any further ado, a former OVW heavyweight champion, a former New Jack City world heavyweight champion. He was known as Supernova, Nova, Hollywood Nova, Simon Dean, but we know him as one of the founding members of the BWO, Mike Bucci. Please enjoy. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm uh, sorry I'm on speakerphone, but I'm driving up to Dayton, Ohio, for uh, life in the real world, so to speak, for my job, and uh, doing this while I drive. So I've been we've been trying to get this together for a little while right now with you guys. It's been my fault that we haven't. I apologize for that, but uh, we got some stuff coming up. So let's get rocking and rolling. Right, that's a big weekend coming up for WrestlePro on 4:30 in Rawway, New Jersey, where you can come meet the BWO. Now, what does this feel like to be back in New Jersey? You know, or coming back to New Jersey, kind of where you started it all. Oh, it's awesome. You know, and I don't want to get into the whole spiel, but I basically started in late '91, beginning in '92 at <laughs> Iron Mike Sharp's Wrestling School in Bricktown, New Jersey. I am a, a Jersey Shore native, born in Keyport, raised in Tom's River, New Jersey. Uh, started my career on the Jersey Indies, go all the way back to the world of Carluzzo, Tommy D, Dino Santa, uh, all the guys in the early East Coast Indies, myself, Donnie B, Rick Ratchet, Ace Darling, Devin, all of us that ran, we ran, we were known as the Brick Cliff, the Goon, Rocco Dorsey, Lupus, all of us, our boys TC, we pretty much ran Jersey wrestling, we were the Brick Click, and, uh, you know, the Jersey fans have never forgotten me, they always embraced me, uh, they saw me come up all the way through ECW, Jersey Indies through ECW, then eventually to WWE, I mean, they follow my career all along, and whenever we do PWS, I always get, and especially when it's with BWO too, we always get one of the better reactions of the night when we come out because the fans have seen us since day one. The Jersey, New York, Philly fans made us into what we are. It's a crazy environment, usually, you know, in the Northeast as far as fans are concerned. Is that kind of your favorite place to kind of come wrestle, or, you know, was it your favorite place to come wrestle somewhere in the Northeast? Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely is, because the Northeast fan base you know, saw me from the beginning. They saw me in ECW. Be part of Raven's flock. They saw me move on 
get my game to the next level, uh, get my skill level to the next level, whether it was the ECW Arena, the Elks Lodge in Queens, uh, all through Pennsylvania, Delaware, Jersey, all that whole area, New York. Uh, then, you know, I left, went down to OVW, and then I was, whenever I'd be in the Northeast, whether it was Philadelphia or the Garden or whatever it would be, as Simon Dean, I always got one of the better reactions out there. And I could 100% tell it was because even though they introduced me when I was Simon, you know, from Clearwater, Florida, everybody knew I was from New Jersey. They knew I had an ECW background. That was my stopping grounds up there. So they, I think a lot of people could relate to me because I was kind of like a good old guy who made good, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like one of them who used to be in the, fan, in the stands and I was a true fan. And I paid my dues the right way and came up. And I, every year I tried to advance more. And they, they were long, if they, if they followed my career long enough like you guys all did. I mean, you saw me wrestling at Armories for 50 bucks dressed as a superhero. So, you know, the fact that I made it to the largest company in the world in WWE, it, it's got to be to some people mind-boggling because most people that they know, they never leave their 10-mile radius around their hometown or they don't travel. And I've been to 55 countries, and I've been all over the United States, and I have action figures and video games, and none of it would have been possible if I didn't have the support of a lot of the Northeast fans. The Northeast fans are, are so passionate, they're so great, but I remember being a young fan and seeing you and a lot of the guys you mentioned earlier, like a Devin Storm, like an Ace Darling, like a Reckless, like a Mike Quackwitz. I remember seeing you on the Jersey, you know, indie scene, if you will. I remember New Jack City Wrestling. I remember Phoenix Wrestling. Can you just talk a little bit about memories of, like, a place like New Jack City Wrestling? Oh, it was awesome, man. I mean, <laughs> New Jack City sprung up when uh, Iron Mike Sharps went under. It was, it was a, and this is late 90s. Donnie B got together with a guy named Mr. Lucifer, and they were running shows at the Freehold Armory, and... New Jack City Wrestling used some ECW guys, Dreamer, Raven, Sandman, myself, BWO, a lot of good indie guys, Reckless, Montoya, Julio, some other dudes, Harley Lewis, Misfits, you know, a, a hodgepodge of, of, uh, of uh, Jersey Wrestling. And then, you know, out of that sprung the AWA, I think it was called, ASWA, maybe, with Mike Gillians, a guy named Mike Gillians, he was cool. He used to run his shows. He sprung out of New Jack. And then after when ECW, like the last couple months that ECW was actually when it folded, uh, Donnie B launched Phoenix Championship Wrestling. And the concept was that, you know, there was so much. Are we allowed to say, like, curse words on this show? Because I was going to say a bunch of shit. Is that, can we say that or what? Oh, <laughs> if not, you can edit me out. But there was so much shit. <laughs> on the Jersey indie scene, you know, between Dapper and Chino, I don't know if you guys ever had to sit through any of that nonsense, but if you did, your eyeballs probably burned out. Did you guys ever have to go to any of those shows? Yeah, I went to a couple of uh, Dapper Johnny shows for sure. <laughs> but they do all that shit, dude, I mean, and they burned out towns, and they screwed the fans, and they were just terrible promoters. So Donnie B sprung up from the ashes of that, and launched Phoenix Championship Wrestling. And we were based out of Tom Zimmer, our hometown. That was our home hub. He drew to Seaport every month. He had a show. Probably had anywhere between 700 to 1,000 every single show. We had top-notch talent. Uh, you had, you know, people that came in like Kazarian and Joe. AJ did a show for him. 
uh, Red, Rick Blade, Backseats, myself. I wrestled Eddie Guerrero there one night. Uh, I mean, we had everybody come into Phoenix, and it was like a stopgap. And then, you know, some of the other ones sprung up after that, like uh, Feinstein's thing, Ring of Honor, and uh, uh, that idiot who ran around Philadelphia cutting himself. Who was that guy? The guy who did the Ultimate Warrior ripoff. Dan Ziggler, whatever his name was. That idiot, yeah. He was running combat zone. That bullshit. He was running combat zone. I mean, at least it was a place to work. I never blamed the guys for, you know, doing what they had to do to get paydays. It wasn't my cup of tea. I would never do that stuff. But, uh, you know, there was a hotbed of action. But Donnie B was really, I mean, look back, man. After Carluzzo went down and Gino and Fred came in and, like, not Fred as much, but Gino and Dapper, and they Carthaginian pieced the entire landscape and wiped it out and salted the earth, and they killed it. Donnie B sprung it up and really got the ball rolling again, man. You know, you know, I look at Russell Pro with Pat Buck, and, you know, even like Jay Jersey All-Pro came after, like a lot of those guys came after Donnie B, and he really, you know, he got out of the promoting game when he became a cop. You know, Donnie was a full-time cop and doing that, and, you know, the wrestling boom was dying a little bit, and, you know, once he got out while it was still on top and red hot, he had TV, we were having kick-ass shows. And when I left, too, when I signed my deal with WWE to come down to OVW in 2004, or 2003, I guess I can't, whatever it was, you know, he was around for about another year after that. But, you know, it just he, if it wasn't for him, man, there was a lot of guys that would have lost a lot of paydays. Big Jerry Wall wrestled for us. Uh, we had the Haas Memorial Cup one time. That was awesome. I mean, we did some good shit. As a young fan growing up, there was so much good wrestling and so many talented wrestlers. But if I could wind a little bit, you know, you were talking about Iron Mike Sharpen coming up through Iron Mike Sharpen training. Obviously, he passed away last year. But what were some quirky stories about Iron Mike? Cause, uh, Ace, we had Ace Darling on, and he was saying that, you know, his OCD was out of control. And you know, he was just a, generally kind of a weird guy. <laughs> Well, he was. Here's the gimmick with Mike Sharp, man. I think this is missing from a lot of wrestling schools today. Like, from what I've seen, you know, Pat does it right at WrestlePro. Danny Cage and the guys at the factory do it right with Wiles and Meany and those guys. But, you know, I, when I went to Mike Sharp's, I wasn't learning. I, I walked into Mike Sharp's. A friend of mine named Rich was going to school and training to be a wrestler. And me and Donnie B would go and watch him train. So, after about, like, a couple months of this, and it was Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays we would go to watch and hang out. And uh, they finally asked me to get in the ring one day. So me and Donnie got in the ring and tried it out. Donnie B pretty much figured out instantly it wasn't for him. So I was like, well, this is pretty cool. So I joined his school. And I figured it would just be like, you know, a baseball or bowling league. Like something I would do to have some fun with. And that was it. It would never go any further. Little did I know, you know, it would take me to the depths that it took me. Or the, the, the heights that it took me. So, you know... Mike, he wasn't getting in the ring to show us how to do chain wrestling brother and high spots and all this other bullshit. Mike's name carried a lot of weight. He was an old-timer. He was really respected. When I first came on, I was probably a couple months in, and uh, Mike would always get contacted to take the extras up to do TVs. So we would go do wrestling challenge, wrestling superstars, and he would bring up, you know, back in that day, Everybody used to connotate it like it was a bad thing, but you did the Saturday morning enhancement matches, and, you know, you had, like, the big star, like Diesel or Atom Bomb or whoever it was against so-and-so. 
you know, it was a squash match. And uh, they don't really do those anymore. No, I, do they? I mean, I haven't seen them forever. No, hardly at all. Nope. Yeah, so, but that, you remember watching wrestling then. It would be like, you know, I'm talking about, like, Bobby Who or Tony DeVito, Mike Bell, a young P.J. Walker, Mike Bucci, uh, Mike Moraldo. I mean, this, that's Mike Shaw brought the job guys up. And that's how I initially cut my teeth in the business. And they just don't have that anymore. So, yeah, Mike was different. I would, I'd go to work every day, Monday to Friday, at Wendy's. I used to work at Wendy's. And I'd work from 6 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I'd get out of school. I'd go, I got out of work. I'd go to college for a couple hours. I was finishing my degree in math to get my associate. And then three nights a week, on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, after college was over, I'd go to Mike Sharp's from about 7 o'clock at night till like, we'd be there till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, training and screwing around. And, uh, you know, independent shows on the weekends, where we could get them on Friday or Saturday nights. I mean, we would load up Rick Ratchet's car, me, Donnie B, Ratchet, Rocco Dorsey, all of us, and we would go to Downingtown, Pennsylvania, Pottstown, New Jersey. It didn't matter where we went. We had our bags in the car. If we, here's the thing, and this is a lost art, too. If one of us got booked... And, like, he was going to the show. If, even if we weren't booked, <laughs> we would go anyway. And we would bring our gear. And I will tell you this, 99 out of 100 times when we went to that show, almost every single time the promoter would put us to work and we would do a good enough job where they'd book us again the next time. And I don't do a ton of independent shows. I mean, you guys probably go to way more than I even do for the year. But uh, I don't see that anymore any shows I go to. I never see an independent wrestling show and just see any young boys or green boys there with their worker bags trying to get on the show. I never see that anymore, and I don't know why that is. Hmm. Definitely an interesting thing, and you're definitely probably correct on that. Very, yeah, that is kind of I'm 100% correct. Old school. It's very old school, and I'm an old school dude, and Mike Sharp, <laughs> he was definitely a quirky cat. I mean, we would leave training and go to Denny's, like the crew, the brick click, we'd go to Denny's and have, you know, dinner after training. I mean, here we are, we didn't know any better, we'd all be training all night and then go fucking get chicken fingers or something. But uh, we'd come back to school, and we'd peek into school, and there would be Mike Sharp at like 12.30 in the morning, doing like squats and calisthenics and dips with the, with the chairs and all this shit with nobody else in the school. And he was this big, grumbly voice. Oh, 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 And he carried this big bag of gum around with him, and we'd all get the gum from him. And, like, every now and then he'd go in the back and put on the tights and the, and the wristband and the armband and put the oil on and all that shit. And uh, <laughs> I will tell you this, one of the great regrets of my life, when I took the office job in WWE... Me and Howard Finkel made it a mission to try to track down Mike Sharp. And we tried, man. I mean, between the both of us, me and Fink, we had a pretty extensive book of contacts, and we could not track him down. And then I tried again about six months before he passed away. I tried again. Fink tried to. We couldn't track him down, man. We looked everywhere. And then a very good friend of mine, Mike Johnson, uh, everybody who's Mike is, he's the top journalist in wrestling. Uh, he contacted me one day and said, hey, man. And it was a really weird, like, circumstance of how he found out that Mike died, but he did. 
and I was in disbelief, man, because he'd been in Hamilton, Ontario, and my ex-wife is from Hamilton, Ontario, and, like, I tried, man. I mean, I tried everything I could to try to track this dude down, but he was living in total anonymity in, like, some basement of some apartment where, you know, if, all this, if we had known about that, you talk about this GoFundMe shit and all that other stuff, man, let me tell you something. If all the students knew that Mike was living the way he was on his last years, he'd have had a nice-ass chunk of change from all of us to make sure he was taking care of his in retirement because he he, he, he lifelong friends, man. All the guys who I'm still friends with, even though I live in Louisville, Kentucky, you know, obviously Donnie B, but Rick Ratchet, uh, Lupus, the goon Rocco Dorsey, CC, Bobby G, our whole entire crew... I'm still best friends with all these guys 25 years to the, after I walked into Mike Sharps. 25 years ago, I met these guys, and we're all still friends as if we all met yesterday. Wow. That's yep. crazy. And with all yep. Mike Sharps, it's crazy the way he died, but is there any sort of uh, history behind that of, like, why did he kind of go into hiding and kind of why was he just... I don't John, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, he was a, a very seclusive dude. We didn't know much about him. Like, we even, like, heard back in the day he had reports. And one of our guys, Piper, who was there, Bobby Piper, he used to tell us, like, you know, he tried to follow Mike home a couple times and track him down where he lived. Like, none of us knew where he lived up in Woodbridge. Like, we never went to Like, we never saw him, man. It was just weird. He was a very, like, reclusive dude. He was just a, you know, and a, like, guria and Sergeant Slaughter and all those guys, Briscoes, they all respected me because I came up the right way in the business, but because Mike was my trainer, too, and they would tell me the stories of how, like, many night at an arena, Mike, even though Mike was on, like, second or third match, he would get locked in the building after the show was over and after everybody was gone, the janitors and everybody, because he would be still in the shower, like, cleaning like several hours later. Mike Sharp got locked in many a building because he was still showering hours and hours after it was closed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, now on an, independent, on an independent wrestling show, <laughs> you don't have to worry about that because it's my biggest pet peeve. When I do independent wrestling shows, I'm usually either the semi-main event or the main event, and... Almost every single show that I do, as each one of these guys gets done, it gets to intermission, whatever it is, one by one, you just see them all getting their bag and leaving the show and walking out the door and leaving. And by the time the main event goes on, there's literally no one in the locker room. I did a show a couple weeks ago. I was in, it was six matches on the show, and I was in the main event against their local champion. And I'm literally getting ready. They did a, a, a second intermission before my match. And I'm sitting there going over my deal with the guy, and we're getting ready to go out. And, like, one at a time, all these guys are walking up to me. And I just, it just hit me funny. And, again, I'm an old-school dude. I really don't give a shit what you got to do. But I'm just saying to myself, I was always taught you never leave a show early. And if you want to be a main eventer one day, you should kind of watch main eventers or at least watch the guys who have been there and have done it. And if you think about it, for the most part, I've had to sit – through that show, and I watch every match on the show, I still do, I watch every single match, to see what the fans are into, what they're not into, to watch the finishes, to make sure I don't repeat anything, and uh, I've had to sit and watch all those shitty matches, 
for the most part, they can at least be respectful and watch, like, the main events. And they never do. And it just, that's something that drives me nuts on an independent wrestling show, man. It does. And these are the same guys that complain or they want to ask you pointers or something. And, uh, you, you know, my pointer would be, hey, man, stick around and watch the goddamn show. You might actually get better. But there I am ranting on my soapbox. So. It's a generation thing, John. It's a generational gap. Gap. It has been taught to them. I'm not mad about it. It just is what it is. I come from an old regime. I was taught again, 25 years in the business, and I've never left the show early. Let me repeat that. Let me add to it too. I've not only never left the show early. I've never no show to booking. If I've had to cancel, I, I've never taken a deposit from a promoter. Uh, if I had to cancel a booking, I always let them know super ahead of time, and it was only because of, like, a work thing came up and I couldn't make it. Uh, but, yeah, I never no-showed. I've never had an incident on a show. I've never shot on anybody. Um, I've never had, you know, I never, had to be, well, never had to beat up any fans or anything. I've never left early. You've never heard my name connected with and you never heard me around screwing around with any of the rats, any of that nonsense. I mean, I just never... I never got into it, man. I always try to hold myself to a level of professionalism that I think the degree is lost today. So, <laughs> a lot of things it is. are definitely lost in the, today's wrestling for sure. You know, it's very different than, than it was then. But, you know, we were talking about Iron Mike and how he kind of broke you in a little bit and got you into the WWF in the early 90s and kind of, you know, missing yeah. the job role or the enhancement talent role. Do you remember any of those matches specifically? Like, I know you wrestled a lot. Yep. Sure do. Do you remember those matches? Diesel. I wrestled, I wrestled Diesel when he was getting his push, when he was getting ready to break away from Sean. <laughs> couldn't have been cooler. Kevin Nash couldn't have been cooler. I mean, I wrestled Diesel, Adam Bomb, the Head Shrinkers. The only, I wrestled Looters. I mean, I'm going way back with this one, and most fans don't even remember this guy. There was a guy named Ludwig, Ludwig Borga, and uh, he was from Finland. He was a shoot tough guy, a brawler, and I'll never forget that match because at the opening bell, he comes running at me, and he literally clotheslined me in the head and gave me, he knocked me unconscious for like five seconds. Obviously, I got a concussion. Uh, and during that match, you see him, like, pick me up and throw me in the ropes, and I stumble. Like, I was so green back then, I didn't even know like, how to get a hold, or do a pause, or just do anything, like, I was literally out on my feet, like, I go back and watch that, I've only watched it once or twice, it's too painful to watch, and I'm like, holy shit, but, uh, you know, I've had at least a dozen concussions in my lifetime that were diagnosed, no, no telling how many that were undiagnosed, but I know that one of them for sure came from old Ludwig, so, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, I was just thinking, like, uh, I wonder if he stiffed you, because I know with Ace, we talked about Ludwig, how he had those very hard punches, and, he, you know, he kind of gave you in the ribs, you know, and he takes some liberties with some of the guys. Well, he was a, a tough dude. That was his thing. And, like, you know, years later, when I got more seasoned, and, you know, especially when I went to WB as Simon Dean, <laughs> I would have matches like that with Bob Holly, Benoit, you know, guys who you could go in there and they hit you hard and you hit them hard. And it was awesome. I mean, I loved wrestling them because, you know, Bob was fantastic in the ring. Chris was great. And it was, you know, Jericho was like that to a degree, too. 
And, you know, but uh, here I am six months into business, and I got Ludwig Bordner crushing me in the corner with a clothesline to the head. I'm not going to tell him to take a hold. I don't know how to, I, I'm barely fighting for my life. <laughs> I mean, you talk about a trial by fire. Holy shit. <laughs> but that's how it was. You know, I just always try to be respectful, be cool. You know, I was still working on my body, working everything from my gear to my look and all that shit. I mean, all the, all that piled together, and then, you know, indies after that, and during that, and then early ECW, and then BWO, and then tagging with Chetty, and then, you know, everything I've always did in my career was like, what's the next step, what's the next step, and like constantly progressing, so that was my foundation, and that's not around today, you got guys now who get into the business, whether it's, uh, you know, Ring of Honor, or TNL, whatever it is. They go to wrestling school, and, like, within a couple months, man, they want to be fighting for belts. They want to be stars. They have YouTube channels. They've got Twitter accounts, all this other shit. And these guys have done nothing. Like, the lo- that's a lost art. I'm sorry, but it is. Paying dues and, and coming up the right way, it really is a lost art to me. I just, I, I'm not in the loop as much as I used to be, so I can't judge it completely. You know, there are companies that do right. Pat Buck and his, you know, like I said, Danny Cage does a good job at the factory, uh, Monster Factory, Meanie and Wiles and those guys, and Pat Buck, I can't say anything more about Pat, I mean, if, if I did, he'd be my own, well, I'm not old enough to be his dad, an older brother, but uh, I mean, he's one of my proudest students, I mean, Pat was a student of mine, we used to call it the League of Shadows, a behind the scenes student, and I couldn't be prouder of Pat. You know, he runs a great promotion. There's a lot of guys in this business right now, John, that basically they get to perform as professional wrestlers because of Pat Buck. And I hope those guys realize that. That's a great thing they got going there. You know, he split with his partner. His partner's doing his own thing. Pat's doing his own deal. They got a shitload of shows coming up. And me and Blue Meanie are going to be there this Saturday, and we can't wait. Absolutely, and, and you know, speaking of me and speaking of your history there, obviously BCW was a huge part of your both of your success, and obviously you guys are the founding fathers of the BWO along with D.B. Richards. But can you talk about how you got into ECW to begin with? Uh, yeah, it's a great great question because <laughs> again, it showed my perseverance. I was at a New Jack City wrestling show, <laughs> and I was wrestling on that show that day in a tag team match with a guy named Rock and Rico. And we were wrestling, I forget who it was, maybe the Misfits or something. Well, the main event on that show was Raven versus Mikey Whipwreck. So, you know, I knew Scotty a little bit. I met him once or twice. He was Raven in ECW. That act was taking off. And Stevie I knew from Mike Sharps because he would come around when he was still the stud boy, Steve Richards. This is before Dan Stevie Richards. I met Stevie. Stevie was like one of the first guys I met at Mike Sharps in 1992. He would come from Philly. He would do the shows. He stood at our house a bunch of times. I've known Stevie almost 25 years. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so he's in with the cutoff shorts, doing the shit with Scotty, teaming with him, being his flunky and all that. So I do the show that day, and I used to wear, you know, if you weren't unfamiliar with my gimmick, if you didn't familiar with it, you didn't know, I used to have like a super, I was a superhero. And I used to have a cape and makeup on my face, and I used to run to the ring and be like a goofy cart. I do cartwheels and all that. And I was like an Adam West kind of Batman superhero. So I do the whole thing, and Raven comes up to me after the show. He's like, hey, man, what, what, what are you supposed to be? 
And I said, oh, superhero. He goes, dude, like Adam West, Batman? And he goes, is this serious? And I go, no, it's like Adam West's last greatest American hero. He goes, this is fucking awesome, man. He goes, this is incredible. <laughs> he goes, I'll tell you what, man. Put together just a tape of your entrances. You don't have to put any matches on, man. Just the entrances. And give me one of your 8x10s. He goes, I'm going to be working at Moon Dancers next week. Come up and see me. And drop that shit off to me, man. I want to show it to Paulie and Tommy, man. I got this group that I want to start in ECW. I got your buddy Stevie there. And I got this other guy I'm bringing in named Blue Meanie, man. It's going to be awesome. You'd be the perfect guy for our group. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. I went home. I spliced together a VHS. Because this is back in the day. You had to use VHS tapes for everything. So I have a video camera hooked up to my VHS player. And I'm doing splicing and editing with a video camera and a VHS turntable, putting together my highlights of just entrances. So I go up the next week to Philadelphia to Moon Dancers, and lo and behold, it's a strip club. And uh, who's the DJ behind the booth? But there's Scott Levy as the DJ behind the booth. <laughs> so let that, let that sink in. I'm in a strip club in Philadelphia, and Raven's the DJ, and Supernova slash Simon Dean is dropping off an envelope to him in the strip club full of highlight tape and pictures of me and my superhero outfit. You can't write this shit. So, <laughs> I give it all to him, and I leave. And, like, I don't expect to hear anything. Like, three or four days later, my mom's, I get home from work, and my mom's like, hey, there's a guy in the answer machine for you. He says his name is Raven. And I go, what? So I listen to the message. Hey, kid, it's uh, Raven, man. Hey, it's a Scotty dude. Hey, look, man, uh, Paulie and Tom, Paulie and Tom, I really love your shit, man. Taz thought it was really funny too, man. Come on down to the arena, man, at the next show, and uh, you know, come on backstage and meet everybody. So I've been to the ECW arena a couple times to watch the show. <laughs> so I went, and to this day, like, I have, I, I have not had a Hall of Fame career. I did not have a Hall of Fame wrestling career, but I didn't have the worst career. I had a pretty decent one. And to this day, I will tell you single-handedly, standing in the ring of WrestleMania, all the other things I accomplished, scariest moment of my professional wrestling life was that day at the ECW Arena when I went into the building and I walked towards the curtain and I told one of the guys that was at the curtain, I can't remember his name, I said, hey man, can you go back there and tell Scotty that Nova's here to see him? The guy disappeared, he popped his head back and he goes, come on back, man. And that was it. I went in the back... First guy, first person I met was Beulah McGillicuddy. She came around to me. She was, hey, how you doing? I'm Teresa. I said, hey, how you doing? And then Dreamer popped out around the corner with a mouthful of hot dog. I had met him one time before at a show for Dino Santa. He's eating the hot dog. And he goes, you hungry? And I said, no, I'm good, man. He goes, here, take a hot dog. I said, okay. So he gives me the hot dog. He goes, hey, man, I saw your tape. Your shit's good. I've seen you wrestle before Dino's. You know, if you want to start showing up at the shows, man, maybe we can get you on the spot with Scotty. Uh, if you get on board, the job really doesn't pay shit in the beginning, but, you know, we, if you want to come on board, you're on. I said, awesome, dude. And then I just started going to a bunch of shows, and then about a month or so later, I did a match with Bubba in Reading, Pennsylvania, and then I just started coming to the room with the flock. Next thing I know, you know, 18 years later, I'm uh, part of a DVD with the greatest factions in pro wrestling history, and there I am running around with Stevie Amini as the BWO. So, go figure. Yep. Crazy the way things happen, and crazy the way, you know, your <laughs> kind of big push happened. 
because how does the BWO actually form? I know you guys were doing like a kiss parody, and you guys were joking and being kind of like <laughs> we did kiss. We did the parodies. Yep, we did the parodies. We did all that shit. The NWO was white hot. Uh, Raven was friends with all those guys. After we did kiss, which was a monster reaction, we come in the back. And I'm pretty sure we were talking about doing something, and Bubba looked at one of us and said, man, you know, you guys are never going to top that, man. And uh, I think it was Meanie that said, you know what, man, we should do the NWO. Or maybe Bubba said, maybe it might have been Bubba that said, man, you guys should do the uh, NWO parody. <laughs> and Meanie turned around and said, we should call it the BWO, the World Order, instead of the New World Order. So we were like, what? And my first thing that I'm thinking, being the rational one of all of us, I'm like, well, we can't do that, man. These guys are the biggest stars in wrestling. They're going to, we'll be blackballed for life. We're not going to make fun of these guys. And Raven's like, no, nah, no, nah, man, you know, I'll call Hall and Nash and Hogan. And they'll love it. They'll love it. You know, little did I know that, like, by us doing the parody of the NWO, those guys loved it because it puts them over, too. And they're hip, and they were cool. Kevin Nash and Scott Hall were untouchable. Hogan's untouchable. One, two, three, kid was. They didn't give a shit. They saw some guys that were, you know, we were young guys trying to come up. We're doing this parody thing. We weren't taking money out of their pockets. They couldn't have been cooler about it, you know? And uh, I went home. We planned to do it. We did it in November to remember 2000, we, 1996, November to remember. This year is officially the 20th anniversary of the BWO. Let that sink in. And, uh... <laughs> I went home, we started putting it all together, getting our costumes ready and all that shit. I sat in my basement, I spray painted all the signs that we used for the first time we came out. And Meanie had a friend of his named the Swamp Candles that were a band. And we were trying to think of the perfect music, and Meanie literally showed up one day. He goes, guys, I got the BWO theme song. And he put it in, and very rarely do you have a perfect mix of an awesome theme song for, like, a wrestler. You just don't have it. And the NWO music was perfect for them. You know, that wow, wow, wow. But when the Meanie put that music in for the first time and we heard the opening notes of bumble, I was like, holy shit. And we, I forget who was in the ring doing a promo, but they hit that music and we had a bunch of guys go to the ring with the BWO signs. And the fans kind of got it a little bit, and then three of us hit the ring, and, and the fucking place exploded. And it was only supposed to be one night. We get in the back and Paul, we this is going to be around for a while, guys. And then it became another week and then a month and then two months. And then, you know, before you knew it, dude, honestly, you know, you were in it back then. The BWO, the BWO shirts, man, I mean, they were everywhere. You couldn't turn on Memphis Wrestling, WCW, every, every indie show. The BWO shirts were everywhere. And, like, I can compare it to today when you see, like, the Bullet Club T-shirts or Balor Club and, like, all these kind of hip shirts. The BWO T-shirt was the absolute hippest, like, coolest underground T-shirt you could get. And if you had a BWO shirt and you were to wrestle and so, people were like, dude, that's awesome, man. That's cool as shit. I was told by many people that the BWO shirt was either the top seller of all time in ECW or, like, one of the top, like, one or two sellers of all time in ECW and uh, you know, behind the ECF and W shirt and that stuff. But as far as the character shirt, it was either number one or like number two ever. And uh, 
you know, meanings that Keith wrote the shirts. I don't really mess around with any of that. The guys from Russell Crate were really cool. A couple months ago, they sent us a bunch of beanies and hats and all that stuff. But Meany always brings the shirts to the show. He'll have a bunch there at PWS on, on Saturday. Uh, he does that. What's that wrestling T-shirt thing on the Internet? What's that called? Pro Wrestling Tees. Yeah, he does that. He has that Pro Wrestling Tees thing. He does that. That's like Cabana's deal or something, I think. I don't know about it. I just know he does well with it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, for something that was supposed to be one night, the fact that this is 20 years later and we're still performing it is insane. When we do conventions and the three of us to get together, we literally have one of the longest lines of the day. I told these guys after WrestleMania this year, I said, guys, get your shit ready for Orlando next year. Because I don't care if we go for one day or two days or whatever it is, we got to do that goddamn WrestleCon thing, man. We got to do that WrestleCon because we've never done it. And people don't know when they see the three of us together when they're going to see us again together. So we're one of the harder autographs to get in the encyclopedias and stuff like that because he got all three of us there. And, uh, you know, there's a gentleman named Michael Elliott, great guy. He's a documentary filmmaker. We've been trying to get on the same page with him for a while. He's thrown some interest of wanting to do a documentary about the BWO, like the phenomenon and how it happened. And, you know, the fact that we were on the DVD for the WWE, they had the greatest fact. I thought Meanie was ribbing me. Meanie literally called me one day. He's like, bro, we made the greatest factions in wrestling history DVD. And I go, the what? He's like, they got a DVD come out called The Greatest Wrestling Factions of All Time. <laughs> and I go, like, Horsemen and the NWO and, like, DX and shit? He goes, yeah. I go, we're on that? He goes, yeah. I go, that's impossible. He goes, dude, I'm telling you, we're on it. And then I saw it, and I saw what people said about it, and Mick Foley said it best. Mick Foley was like, you know, these were guys that were doing a parody of guys in the main events, and then they became the main event. And I was like, holy shit. And Paul said it too. He's like basically said that of all the crazy ideas he ever got pitched in ECW, the BWO by far was the most successful one. And uh, it was a testament to the fans, man. The fans made it. I mean, if the fans aren't into a gimmick and they're not buying it, it ain't going to be around long. Don't believe me? Go see Exhibit A, Adam Rose. Go see Bo Dallas. Go see the Ascension. Go see the gimmicks that come in and don't get over. And people are like, nope. Ultimately, the fans decide what's over and what isn't. No matter what anybody in WWE thinks, it's up to the fans. You know, you're totally you know. right. What, yep. The interesting part about the BWO is who decided who was which guy? Like, how did you become Hollywood Nova? How did he become the blue uh, guy? And how did he become <laughs> Stevie cool? wanted to be big Stevie cool. He, th- he wanted to be big Stevie cool. And Meanie almost instantly wanted to do Razor because Meanie's a Razor mark, too. So we were tossing around, and originally Stevie wanted me, and those guys, they wanted me to be Virgil. And Raven was like, well, he can't be Virgil. He's like, what? He's like, no, he's got to be Hogan. And, you know, there was some talk about, well, you know, if I was going to be Hogan, it would make it look like I was the leader of the NWO, you know, the BWO, you know, but everybody knew that, you know, it was a three-man group. And I was like, That's, nobody's going to think that. So Raven's like, bullshit. He's like, he's got to be Hollywood Nova, man. He's got to be Hogan. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I try to do it to the best of my ability. Hogan is the godfather. I mean, I always see people take pot shots out of him, bury him, and all this other stuff. At the end of the day, he's Hulk goddamn Hogan. 
I mean, without him, there's none of this. And it's one of the bigger regrets of my career. When we brought back the BWO for a short time in WWE, which was kind of flop. I don't even know why. It was stupid that we did it. But they brought it back for a little while. And we did a Great American Bash pay-per-view against the Mexicools. And I'm walking around the back. I got my blue and white boa, all my Hogan shit. And that was the pay-per-view in D.C. where Hogan wrestled against Shawn Michaels. And uh, I walk into the locker room with all my shit on. And there's Hogan standing in the locker room with all his shit on. And it was the first time. It was just me and him in there, dude. Nobody else. And I just looked at him and he looked at me. He's like, nice look, brother. And I said, Hulk, I said, I've always tried to do this with the utmost respect. He goes, I know you are, man. Keep working, brother. Keep working. I was like, thank you, Hulk. And I kicked myself in the ass to this day that I didn't say, hey, man, if you mind, can I get a picture? Because that motherfucker would be blown up on my wall. That might be a wall in my house. Like, I have 25-foot cathedral ceilings. I think I would have that literally painted on my, my ceiling of me and Hulk Hogan side by side with the bones on. <laughs> but, you know, you always think there's going to be tomorrow, man. That's some advice I would give to young guys too, man. Take your pictures, write your memories down, record, record, record. Because when the train stops and you get off, it's over. You're not going to get to go to other countries for free anymore. You're not going to get to see fans from other parts of the world for free anymore. You're not as much as you want to stay in contact with all the guys you worked with and wrestled with and all those people, you're not going to see them anymore. You're not, you'll talk on the phone or text messages and all that other shit. But when you're out, you're out. And you know, I think a lot of guys can't come to grips when that happens that day, when that day comes to them. But I would say now record, 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 man, record your memories. So I wish I had done more. It's a great advice. And, you know, sad but true, you know, and you start to lose some of these guys, too, and, you know, start, you know, a couple of them die here or there. Obviously, Axel Rodden passed away, and then even more recently, Balls Mahoney ended up passing away. What were your thoughts on, you know, Balls and Axel? Were you guys close at all? I like John Lechner and Brian Knight and Axel Rodden and Balls Mahoney. I like both of them. I will say, if it wasn't for the world of professional wrestling, that... I would have never met either one of those guys because very rarely, probably in the sport of wrestling, there hasn't been too many different individuals than me and those guys. You know, if you've ever spent any time around me, I've never taken a drop of alcohol in my life. I never took marijuana, pills, any of that shit. I wasn't out of control. I didn't mess with the rats. I wasn't a partier. You know, I was a guy that went to bed early so I could wake up the next morning and go work out. Uh, I've always believed in the business. The business has never forced, and this gets some heat with some people, and I'm sorry, but the business has never forced anyone to make a decision one way or the other when it comes to personal life choices. And I'm even going back to ECW when it came to violence and chairs and tables or whatever the hell everybody did. Everybody did that shit willingly, man. You know, I wasn't a table and chair guy. But I was there for five years, and I wrestled every night. And I was a high-flying, like, innovative, offensive guy, and I took shitloads of bumps. I put my body just as much through as much wear and tear as anybody else. But, you know, addiction is a real thing. It is. Addiction is real. And there's people who can't beat addiction. 
And I don't know if that's what happened with John's case. I don't know if the verdict is out. You know, Axel never beat his addiction, and so many of my other friends passed away from addiction and drugs and abuse. <laughs> that I'm actually glad that, the, and I've said this before, and I'm vocal about it. I'm glad that this generation of current wrestlers, you know, the big complaint you always hear from a lot of the old-timers is, all these bastards now, all they do is uh, play their video games all night, and they go to bed early, and, uh, you know, they're playing on their phones all day and all this other shit. Well, you know what? I would rather have that, and then 15, 20 years from now, I'm not reading about John Morrison or Coffee Kingston and, you know, Xavier and all the Miz and Aaron Stevens and all these other guys. I'm not reading about them ODing on drugs because they picked up a lifestyle habit when they were still in the wrestling business, brother. I mean, the WWE has made amazing strides when it comes for, you know, they pay for rehab, they take care of guys' health, they got all the testing. It's not the business's fault. It's not. I'm a product of the wrestling industry. Everything I have in life, my confidence, my success, whatever I've managed to pull off has been because of wrestling. So I'm not going to shit on it and poo-poo on it because, you know, unfortunately people made bad choices and addiction beat them and they passed away. That sucks because they left behind families and, and children. And it's awful, man. I can't imagine anything worse. But... You know, my dad was a guy that woke up his entire life. He died. He passed away at 67 years old. He worked until he died. But, you know, my dad instilled a pretty hard work ethic in me and my brothers and taught us how to make good choices. And, you know, I had just as many. I was talking about this with Francine earlier. It's funny you mentioned it because we, we were both, you know, she turned out to be a lovely wife and a mother and has children. And she asked me, how come we never got into that world, Nova? And I said, because we never chose to, Francine, you know? And ultimately, a lot of people blame the business. Thank you, John. They blame the business. And, you know, Andre and China passed away and all that other stuff. And, you know, look, man, you know, I, 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 was wrestle, I was in the full-time wrestling industry for almost 16 years. I've been involved in the business for 25. I never went that way. So, I mean, again, everybody has their own choices. And they don't know how to do things in moderation. And it sucks, man, when you get that grip on you. And you get pulled in, and you get sucked in, and the sickness takes you over, and you die. That That's awful. But a lot of people want to blame wrestling and the injuries and the concussions. And, yeah, the, there's probably some something to that. I mean, all the research is out. But, you know, it, just, it sucks, man. There's no good thing about it. But I, I don't necessarily blame the wrestling business. I blame the individual choices of the people involved. Do you think ECW locker room was kind of, you know, like you, you and Francine, you guys didn't do anything. I don't think Stevie Richards either. He doesn't seem no. like, uh, you know, kind of... A lot of guys that. didn't. A lot of guys didn't. Danny Doring didn't. Chetty didn't. I mean, you know, the Devon didn't. There's a lot of guys who didn't. Dreamer wasn't a drug addict. You know, it's just one of those things where, you know, yeah, I guess some of that was prevalent in the ECW locker. Of course it was. I'm not an idiot. I mean, you walk around in one corner, there's all we got smoking weed. You go in another corner, there's a bunch of guys taking pills. There's some other guys in the corner doing rats. I mean, you don't know what the hell you were going to see there. But I will tell you this. I'll be goddamn if none of those guys ever forced anything on everybody. And when it came time to go, everybody went. They all busted their asses. It was a brotherhood. It was a camaraderie. 
Uh, everybody got along. There was no backstabbing. There was no politicking. There was none of that. So, yeah, a lot of these guys had some weird vices that maybe kept them out of other wrestling companies and stuff. But uh, they were, we were truly a group of brothers. We were an eclectic mix. You know, in the real world, I don't think you would have found all of us under one roof working somewhere in a company somewhere together, like in a factory or something. But, uh, you know, it really was a collection of misfits and weirdos and guys that were either trying to get to WWE or WBCW or get back there or, you know, they couldn't in between jobs or whatever it was. But I will say this, every person who ever stepped into ECW was pretty much happy when they got there, man. They loved being there. There was no negative vibe to it. So, you know, it sucks that people passed away and we lost brothers and we lost friends and I get all that, but a lot of it has to do with personal choices. Yeah, I'd say you're absolutely true on that for sure. And, you know, ECW, you were there basically to the, you know, to the bitter end. Were you shocked to see yeah. ECW end the way it did? No, not at all. I wasn't shocked. I 100% saw that coming from a mile away because I researched and I saw like, you know, what was going on with, uh, you know, the, the money and the pay-per-views and the TV and the royalties and all this shit. We were back on pay. We weren't getting money, you know, all this other stuff. It was just one thing after another. I was like, well, what the hell is going on here, man? And, uh, you know, again, I was a guy who was really busting my ass trying to get in shape and get my game to the next level and, I just really wanted to get my skill level to the next level and bust my ass. And uh, I, I always, I, did, I didn't view ECW for me for life because when I first put wrestling boots on, my goal was to get to WWE or WWF at the time. Now, I saw it towards the end. You know, there was always the rumblings of Paul, like, you know, he was supposedly trying to get us a new deal and all this other bullshit and whatnot. But, you know, I knew. <laughs> What's up, man? Oh, I didn't know that, man. Yeah, Shit. Man, I... <laughs> now they got yeah, me. Oh, I'm sorry. Right here. Come, just go. It goes the opposite direction. Oh, wait, no. Damn, as soon as I... There I go. There I go. See that? I'm driving around downtown Dayton. See, you got you, you, you listeners just got some extra footage right there. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, I knew it. I knew as soon as they told us that, you know, the deal was, was fell through, through, uh... Whatever the hell that was. There was some kind of network or something, whatever it was, some network on TV that was going to be out. And I knew as soon as that happened, man, that it was over. The run was over, and it, the company was dead. I knew it. As soon as we were in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, I knew that was it. When we did the last show there, I'm like, nope, that's it. So, what are you going to do, you know? It sucks, but nothing you can do, you know? Yep, the writing... Yeah, the writing was on the wall, but you, you know, you ended up, oh, in yeah. you ended up in OVW, you know, you became the world champ, and you're beating a guy that's pretty famous now named uh, John Cena, who was then the prototype, kind of, uh, basically, <laughs> as you debuted for the company. Oh, I knew. I knew as soon as, I knew where I wanted to go, though, as soon as it folded. I knew, hey, man, I, I was probably out of the, I mean, ECW folded, and, uh, Within, like, a matter of weeks, I, had, I, I was going around the world. I was traveling all over the place. I was getting booked everywhere. Jim Ross contacted me and told me that, you know, WBF was going to get to me as soon as they could, all this other stuff. So I didn't sweat for a minute, man. I was shredded from head to toe. I could hang with anybody in the world in the ring at that point. 
So I was on point. I just knew it was a matter of waiting, and, you know, I got signed to go to OVW. Jim Cornette took care of me, brought me down there. He gave me a good push. Uh, I couldn't have asked for anything better. So, and you, you know. And you the prototype, a.k.a. Uh, yep. John Cena, uh, upon, you know, upon arrival. Did you see a lot in him at that point? Did you see him becoming one of the bigger stars, or did you kind of see him as, like, this big muscle-bound guy who was basically green at that I had point? Known John, I had known John from UPW days back in California. So when I first oh. met John in California, I was like, yeah, I was like, this guy has something, man. He's a little bit different. And, uh, you know, nobody can predict the level of megastar that someone's going to become. But, uh, you know, when he had his shit together and he's out there and he's, you're in the ring with somebody, you could see the early beginnings of it. John was a true fan. He wanted to be good. He had the desire to be good. So he worked his ass off and he made his own break. There's no such thing as luck in wrestling. I don't believe in luck. And, uh, you know, John did everything right. He was always in the right place at the right time, and he made the best of his situation. And uh, he became arguably one of the biggest box office draws ever. He definitely <laughs> did. Obviously, you know, he's still a pretty big-time star now. Obviously, you know, he's dealing with some injuries, but he'll be back sooner rather than later. When you oh, were yeah. wrestling down there, you know, when you were down there in OVW, obviously there's the Cena's of the world, there's the Lesnar's. But did you see those guys becoming huge? Obviously, besides Cena, but did you see the Lesners and the Ordens and Batista? Did you see them popping up and becoming big stars? Yeah, to a degree, because they were there for a reason. And they were also getting paid down there. So the company wanted to make sure they were going to be stars, too. So, you know, you never know what a guy is going to become. You know, you could also say the same thing about Mark Jindrak and Sean O'Hare and countless other guys. But, you know, Brock's and Randy's and all these guys, you knew the company had plans for them. They were going to get behind them and give them the right pushes and give these guys the ball. And ultimately, it's up to the talent to get over with the fans enough to draw money to really become the next level superstar. I mean, it's one thing to get the ball, but you've got to be able to run with it. And if they didn't, they would have fizzled out and they would have been, you know, going to do something else with the rest of their life. So they, uh, they made it work. Now, what point did you become, like, an assistant booker down there in OVW and then kind of a trainer? Uh, I was probably there about six months. And, you know, I already had 10 years in. I mean, Nick Din, there was a couple guys down there that really could go. Dinsmore, Conway, Basham, Damage, all those guys. But for the most part, I was a senior guy down there. I already had a couple thousand matches under my belt. I wasn't necessarily going to get a whole lot better by just wrestling OVW matches all the time. But Jimmy wanted to figure out a different way to kind of get me on board to actually teach me more and, uh, you know, justify my paycheck a little bit more to be like, look, let's keep this guy interested. So that's what we did. And did you enjoy the booking aspect of the wrestling business? Of course I did. Yeah, I figured that would be my next level into the business, and uh, that's what I kind of wanted to do to learn more about that and go from there. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where that definitely was an interest to me. I used to run the house shows. We would go to the live event house shows and, uh, you know, go down to them, and I'd have the lineup and put the matches together and, uh, and go from there. So, How about the training aspect? Did you enjoy that aspect as well? Hang on one second. I'm in this hotel. Hang on one second. I'm going to go in there and check, out for, uh, check in for a minute, but where do you park around here? Uh, I'm staying here tonight. I don't know where the hell to park my car. You have the option of a, a, a valet for uh, 15 at night, or you can park in the garage. I'll valet it. 
fifteen dollars well spent. Okay. I'll just pull up here. Yeah, All right, thank you. Here. I'll be right up. Hear that? This is how negotiations happen. Fifteen dollars for the ballet. I'm good with that. But uh, yeah, the training part of it was I, I trained every day, even though I wasn't. I didn't have to wrestle every single house show match after being there for like a year and a half or so, because it got to a point with me where it was like, look, this guy's the best talker, the best wrestler, and the best overall finished guy down here right now. If you don't have anything for him on the creative team, he's gonna book our house shows and run them. And I wrote TV a bunch of times. I was learning that aspect of it. Because it would have been silly just for me to keep doing what I was doing and just getting my card filled and running a risk of injury and all that kind of shit. So that's why they said, look, let's get him to do this. And uh, I love that part of it. But I trained, you know, I was still, even towards the end of my OVW career, I was one of the first guys in the school every morning with my boots on, and I was one of the last to leave every single day. Ask Rip Rogers or Danny Davis or any of them, they'll tell you. Now, obviously, you know, WWE yeah, has... we got a couple more running. minutes left here. Yep. Obviously, you know... All right, WWE I'm sorry about that. Oh, sorry. Uh, the WWE obviously had a... a uh, they're eyeing you at this point. Obviously, you know, you're one of the best guys down there in OVW. When did they come with you with the Simon Dean the fitness guru gimmick? Uh, all right, I'm coming in. Uh, yeah, Hang on a second. Okay, let me get this stuff out. Thank you. Um, They didn't come to me with that, actually. No, I got one bag. That's it, I'm coming. They didn't come to me. The funny story of that is, all right, so I had a several different ideas in my head. So the Simon one was one I was thinking of for a while. So they fly, I go to TV, and John, you know, I've been there forever again, and Johnny A says to me one day, he's like, look, man, and they would bring me on the road. Like, every couple months, they would bring me on the road, and I'd go on the road for a house show loop so they could watch me and, you know, maybe think of some ideas. I could meet with the writers, and they would try to think of something to get me on the show. <laughs> so, you know, they couldn't think of anything, I guess. <laughs> so, Johnny says to me one day, he's like, hey, man, you know, we're going to be in the area. I want you to come up to TV. I want you to really think of some ideas. And Johnny Ace always looked out for me. A lot of people badmouth Johnny Ace and talk shit on him. Johnny Ace always treated me like a million bucks. And uh, so I go to TV, and I had this idea in my head for, like, a Tony Little gimmick. A Tony Little slash Ben Stiller from Henny Heavyweights, uh, Jack LaLanne, like, trainer gimmick. And I originally thought of the name Sonny Slade. I was going to be Sonny Slade. And I was going to have Sonny Slade's Sonny Slade Super System of Self-Help and Supplements. That's what I wanted to have. So I go to the TV taping, and Vince is there, and he's like, he literally says to me, he goes, skill-wise in the ring, you're awesome, you're sound, you're the best guy down in OVW, I always hear great reports about you, I know you have a college degree, and he's going on and on, what can you do to make us money? And I said, well, I said, I have an idea. How about this? So I laid the idea on him for him. <laughs> and he's like, that's tremendous. That's a great idea. And I said, you know, you had all that Ico Pro shit laying around. Let's make some Simon system, you know, some Sunny systems and all that. And, you know, I told him I could have the Sunny side up move and all this stuff. And he's like, you know, yeah, we could film some vignettes. And I said, boss, I said, with all due respect, I don't want to do vignettes. I want to do infomercials. And he looked at me. He goes, what? And I go, yeah, let's do some infomercials. He goes, that's tremendous. And I said, all right. All right, hang on one second. So uh, I'm good to go. Let's go ahead and check in. Yeah, all right, thank you. So tomorrow morning when I come down, just give him the valet ticket and I'll bring a car over. Yeah, give him the valet ticket. Thank you, man. Thank you. <laughs> so I, so I, I tell him that. And literally, 
probably about a week and a half later, all the writers and Vince McMahon, they came down to OBW because they were in Cincinnati the night before. So they come down to OBW to watch us train, and the next day they, they come to OBW to watch us train, and we have to do, like, all these presentations and wrestle matches for them and shit. So Johnny, once again, you know, he told me they were all coming. He's like, dude, put all that stuff together. Come up with the outfit and all that stuff and do whatever you want. You know, when Vince comes down there and they ask you to wrestle like a little tryout match with some of the talent, you know, do your act, man. Do what you want to do with this Sonny Slade thing. I was like, okay. So they come down, and I did the whole act, man. I did a promo for it, the whole deal. And I looked at Vince McMahon. I said, you know, the achieve and believe. I threw a protein bar to him and this whole deal, man. And he couldn't stop cracking up while I was doing it. And uh, I was like, holy shit, I might be on to something. So Johnny comes up to me like an hour after everybody left. And he's like, man, you better start getting a new locker room leader together here at OVW because you're going to be on the road in about two weeks. And I said, what? So literally like a week later, I get all this paperwork. And this is the God's honest truth. They fly me to Stanford, Connecticut to shoot my infomercial. And the day before I shoot it, I think it was big. He sends me an email. I was like, hey, man, what do you need for this shoot? Like, how do you want to do this? Like, put that in perspective. Like, they're asking me how I want to put this commercial together. And I'm always thinking to myself, they have this, I always thought they had this magical box of gimmicks or something up there. And, like, you know, you're the, like the Johnny Bravo suit from back in the day with the Brady Bunch. Like, hey, why are you Johnny Bravo? Oh, because I fit the suit. Like, I didn't know how any of this worked. So I said, you know, give me a fat guy and a girl and some weights and some chicken and, like, all this shit. And they, get, and they brought, the next day was all there. So we shot footage all day long, and they spliced it all together. And then I know, like, a month later, there's my infomercial showing up on TV, you know. And uh, all that was my idea, man. The color scheme, the gym bag to the ring, all the, pro- all the promos. And, and I always get asked about the Segway scooter. I was, uh, I was at a casino, a casino boat in Indiana at Horseshoe, Indiana, and I'm walking around the boat, and I saw some security guards on these scooters, on Segway scooters, and they were like some big, heavy-set, big dudes, and they're on these scooters, and I'll never forget it, because my ex-wife looks at me, she goes, look at those guys, they're too lazy to walk, and I looked at her, I go, holy shit, I go, that's awesome, I go, I've got to get one of those, and she's like, for what, I go, so I can ride to the ring on it. And she's like, what? And I go, that would be incredible. And she goes, why would you take that to the ring? You're a fitness guy. I said, I know. That's the point of it. So I printed out all these <laughs> pictures of it. And I went to Stephanie McMahon. And I said, hey, Stephanie, I got an idea. And she's like, why? So I show her the picture of it. And she's like, is that one of those things from like curb your enthusiasm? And I go, yeah. And she goes, all right, let me ask my dad about it and we'll see. I go, okay. So if she comes back like an hour later. She goes, oh, he said, get it. It's awesome. He doesn't know what it is, but it'd be, it'd be perfect for you. I'm like, all right, cool. So, like, I found a dude in Canada, in Toronto. We were going to be up there the next week. So I bought it off him in the parking lot of a hotel. He came, set it all up for me, and I'm, dri- I'm test driving the Simon Dean scooter <laughs> at, like, 8 o'clock in the morning at a hotel in Toronto. And I bought it off him for, like, eight tickets to the show or something. And uh, that's how I got the Segway. Yep. Yeah, I think that's lost to a lot, a lot of good. Yeah. How did the name come about? I mean, the, the segue is something. But how did it become Simon Dean? I was at a show, and I, you know, I still had no name, and uh, I was doing a house show, and Dean Malenko comes up to me, and he goes, "Hey, uh, guess what your new name is?" And I go, "What?" He goes, "Simon Dean." 
And I go, like Simon says, and he looks at me and goes, no, motherfucker, like a rib on me backwards. Haha, <laughs> Dean Simon. And I go, really? He goes, yeah, somebody thinks it's funny. So your name's going to be Simon Dean now. And I look at him, I go, that's actually awesome. He goes, no, it's not. It's not awesome. And I go, it's incredible. So I would always see him and I go, Dean Simon. He goes, Simon Dean. So, and it works. It works with the whole Simon says and, you know, all that. And people, my name is Simon Dean. It, it's weird too, because I was there for about two and a half years and I was on, t- I was on TV every single week. I always got a promo. I'm a, I was a memorable character in a sense that a lot of people told me that, I was one of the characters that they loved to watch every single week because I was a good wrestler. I had good matches. I was good on the microphone. I was inter- I made the matches entertaining. And, uh, it was, you know, the same, a lot of the old ECW fans didn't like it because, oh, you know, you're not Nova anymore and all that and blah, blah, blah. But I tell them, you know, Simon Dean made a couple hundred thousand dollars and Nova, when ECW went out of business, you know, was owed about $50,000. So <laughs> what are you going to do? Yep. <laughs> yep. So uh, as we start to wind it down here, obviously, you know, you, you did spend a little bit more time in WB Simon Dean, but, you know, you would leave the ring not too far after that, but you also became head of talent development. What was that transition like? <laughs> that was okay. I mean, I was looking to get out. I mean, what, I, I love being on Raw. When I went to SmackDown, I didn't like it as much. Uh, the guys were cool, but there was just some people that I didn't really like seeing that. I don't want to talk too many names. Just think that when you hear the usual suspects of people who were assholes back in the day that nobody likes, I didn't like those guys either. And uh, I was just kind of over it at that point. And, uh, you know, I knew what my role on the show was. I was wrestling a bunch of guys that were usually really bad or untrained, or they were trying to get them over. And I was like, this is bullshit. I'm getting hurt all the time. I'm not making a ton of money at this. So Dreamer was leaving to go relaunch ECW. And uh, Vince McMahon and Johnny Ace handpicked me. They said, look, you've been through the system. You've been around the world. You paid your dues. You got a good eye for talent. You know, because I had tried to get Claudio Castagnoli hired a couple times. And I brought other guys to the show. I would always be in the ring before the shows, working out with the local guys. I had my finger on the pulse of all the independents in the United States. I knew everybody. and. Uh, I took a, a lot of pride in it, man. I want uh, the best thing in the world was calling someone to hire them. You know, oppositely, the worst thing in the world was calling somebody when you had to let them go. But uh, you know, I took pride in that. It was different. It was a different world. Uh, I had to leave Louisville to go up to Connecticut to live there, and there was so much shifting. And even like at that point, you don't think the snakes and stuff are going to rear their ugly head, but. You know, as soon as I got into the office position, within like a matter of weeks, man, like the old wrestling bullshit starts. And, you know, this guy's jealous about this. And, you know, how did you get this job? And they did and all that other just nonsense that you got to deal with. And it just sucked. So that lasted about a year. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I've been in the real world now for about since then. Almost my, my last match in WWE was in June of 2006. So this is 10 years. And, uh, I've never looked back, man. I do my con- can I grab one of these? Thank you. You know, I do my conventions and shows, like I said, but for the most point, I don't miss it. I don't miss most of it, unfortunately. But I miss the guys. I miss the guys, and I miss the fans, and I miss the physical matches. You know what I mean? Like waking, working up a good sweat, good crowd. That I miss. But most of the bullshit, I don't miss at all. In fact, I don't ever want to be around <laughs> again. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Do you have a favorite 
match or maybe a couple of favorite matches looking back if we you know could kind of kind of change it uh, to like a happier times for, for your career uh match wise i mean me and chris chetty loser leaves town for ecw uh wwe a series match i do with matt hardy and velocity that were really good anytime i got with ray or jericho my favorite segment or my favorite like anything i ever did in my wrestling career me and maven sold uh, the Simon system one night to Stone Cold on Raw in L.A. It was the day after WrestleMania 21. And I'll never forget it because it was like 10 minutes long. We sold him the stuff. It's on YouTube. You can see it. We sold our stuff to him. It was an incredible segment. And when I got in the back, Pat Patterson was the first one that looked at me because the night before they did a live Piper's Pit with Carlito and Austin and all that. And it just some people just didn't think it gelled that well. And when you go back and watch it, it was off. And uh, when I came in the back from that, Pat was the first one, and Vince was standing two feet away from him. He looked at Vince and said, that should have been on WrestleMania last night instead of what we had on there. And Vince said, I agree 100%. So, unfortunately, it would have been about an extra 10000 in my pocket if it had been on Mania. But uh, Austin was the easiest guy in the world to deal with. I mean, it couldn't have been. He was so over that, like, anything he did was awesome. And me and Maven just played off him, and he worked off of us, and it just kicked ass, and it was great. But I don't have – you know, I got – again, I was a, a quiet high school wrestling nerd, comic book sci-fi guy from Tom's River, New Jersey. I was never the greatest athlete, the biggest, strongest, fastest, anything like that. And I had a pretty good career overall for a dude with no family in the business. I didn't know anybody. I made my own way from the beginning. So, you know, to have the career that I had, I was pretty happy with it. So. You know, I think if a lot of guys out there shoot for the stars and land on the moon, they'll be a lot happier than putting all this pressure on themselves and thinking that, you know, well, I got in the business six months ago. I didn't make it to WrestleMania yet. There's got to be something wrong. <laughs> so I don't I don't think you'll see a lot of long careers anymore either. I don't. You know, the way the program is set up now with 70 or 80 people in developmental, I don't know if you know this or not, but... The plan is not to get, if you have 75 people in developmental, you honestly don't think that the plan is to get 75 of those people TV, do you? I mean, if you think that, you're nuts, because that's not, that's not the plan. I'm not a baseball guy, but I do know that if I compare it to a major, minor league baseball team, let's say you got minor league baseball team and you got 25 people on the team, one or two of those players is ever going to see the light of day on a major league team. Two or three of the other players might make it to AAA or an affiliate, or you might be able to package them in a trade to get somebody. But those other 20 or 20-something guys on, the, on, the, on your team, the only reason those guys are on that team is to get those other guys ready to go to the big time. And, you know, when you got 75 guys in developmental, you might throw something to the wall. It might stick. You might have somebody get over. Who knows? But the large majority of those guys are, are never going to see TV. And if they do, the, the, the lifespan of your average WB career lifespan, rather, of your average WB wrestler is only going to be a couple of years. And if you weren't a fan of this your whole life, and it's amazing to me, John, too, like when you see people come into business now, what do they always say? Oh, I've been a fan of this my whole life. Oh, my God, I've always loved this. Uh, this is my passion. This is what, This is what I was born to do. Well, the motherfucker, how come you weren't doing it at 19 years old or 18 years old? 
you're doing this shit now because you failed with some other things, whatever athletics it was or endeavor, or whatever the hell else you were doing, you're like in your mid to late twenties. And now all of a sudden professional, because they're going to pay you, you know, 750 or thousand bucks a week, or whatever it is to go train and tan and hang out in Orlando all day. Now, all of a sudden you're a lifelong wrestler. Okay. I get it. But on the flip side, when they flunk out and they blow it and they don't get over and the door opens up and they get out, you know, it's going to be one of those things where they're not going to stick around. They'll just go find something else to do. So that's why I don't think you're going to see guys in this now for 15, 20 years. They're just not going to see it because when they're out, they're out, you know, very few guys leave WWE or get fired from it and then never come back. The only two I can think of off the top of my head over the last couple of years were Aaron Stevens, who went back at Sandow, and now Luke Gallows. You know, he was running around with Joey Matthews doing that, uh, you know, savior shit or whatever the hell that was, or uh, a punk rather, and, and they got rid of him. He goes over to Japan, reinvents himself, and now he's writing his own ticket back there, and Gallows is a good kid, so I'm glad to see it. But you're not going to see that stuff anymore, right? I mean, you think you are? I know. You're not going to. No, definitely not. And no. No. Gallows yep. is an extreme case. He completely reinvented himself with the Bullet Club, so they almost had yeah. to bring him back. He was a young dude. He was a young dude. He was in Deep South. He was so young when he was in Deep South. And then, you know, they let him go, and he reinvented himself and got better in the ring, and he got, you know, his shoes under him and, you know, he got, got his life together and was kicking ass and, you know, did his time and came back, and now he's got a good spot. So could other guys do that? Maybe. I don't think a lot of other guys would want to do that, though. Because they got into this because something else didn't work. You know, you look you look at the uh, when I see the pictures of everybody at the performance center, and they're all kind of like you know lined up with their shirts on and all that shit. And I'm looking at, it, I'm like, man, is this like a lineup for a wrestling school, or is this like a casting call for the next season of Big Brother? Like, I don't know what this is supposed to be. Like, because it looks weird to me. And I just don't know what drives them. You know, I would love to sit and talk to those guys one-on-one. And I could probably tell within a minute if they're a fan or if they're going to make it or not. You know, who knows? The system's not built for everybody to survive it. And quite frankly, it shouldn't be. So that's my take on it. Not everybody should make it. Not everybody should get to play for the Yankees, so to speak. It should be an exclusive club. Or the Dallas Cowboys in my case. But, uh... It, it should be, it should be very exclusive. You should be the best of the best. Wrestling careers should end in the WWE, not begin there. I can I can end this interview with that. I can literally tell you that your wrestling career, if you're prepared for it correctly and you've done everything you can do, you should end your career in the WWE. I don't necessarily think it should begin there. And that's a great great point. But just throwing it out there yep. one last time. WrestlePro this Saturday, 4.30 in Rawway, New Jersey. Please come meet the BWO. Now, Mike Bucinova, please just tell the fans where they can find you if they wanted to reach out and touch you. I'm just on Facebook. You can look me up on Facebook, Mike Bucci. Uh, I don't have Instagram or Twitter or any of that stuff. I've never had it. I never will. It's not my thing. I'm low-key in the wrestling world, so to speak. I don't the spotlight. I've been there, done that. I don't make a living from wrestling anymore. This is side money, side fans. I get to see my people. I do the shows I want to do, um, have fun. The events are still, I get a kick out of coming out and seeing the guys, the gals, seeing all the fans that come out. But, you know, my, my days, they even 
part-time performer in the industry are long past gone. This is different. I'm 43 this year. I'll be 44 in June. And, you know, the industry is in the hands of a whole nother generation now, and I wish them well with it. And I just hope they leave it in better shape than they found it. You know, that that's the, the generational hope that the guys that come after you try to do a better job than we did before and always keep progressing it. So. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.